most gracious Father. We thank you for your word and for the power of your word to not only make yourself known, but to make ourselves known as well. When we look at it, Lord, we can see not only your holiness, but we can see our utter sinfulness. And so we pray, Lord, that as we study your word today, that we would be cleansed, that our minds would be renewed through the power of your Holy Spirit working in us to give us understanding that we would see how awful our sin is and how glorious your grace is. Use this passage, O Lord, to force us to run to Christ, to cling to Christ, to long to be in his presence forever, to worship him in all of eternity. And may he be glorified during this time as we are convicted and instructed and edified for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 2. We are still in John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 22 today. Uh, It was actually very tempting to do a third sermon on the cleansing of the temple, but I figure eventually we just got to move on. But there is so much uh, in John's text uh, it's very easy to get caught up on, on all of the things that are, are extremely significant. Um, but I think we hit on most of the big ones uh, in the two sermons that we did on the cleansing of the temple. But the text that we'll be looking at today is going to require that we go all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to the opening chapter of Genesis The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And one thing after another, as you go through Genesis chapter 1, God creates, and with each thing that he creates, he deems it or he declares it to be good. And the reason that it was good was because everything was exactly as God had created it to be. Nothing had tainted it. Nothing had defiled it. And so God created mankind. And he created mankind to walk with him in fellowship in order that man would glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this was all very good. This was all perfectly good. It was not tainted or defiled in any way. The first man, Adam, was able by nature to experience perfect harmony with God, perfect fellowship with God to commune with God, to live in peaceful union with God, to understand the things of God, and to perfectly understand what God had instructed him to do. So what did God instruct him to do? Well, God gave Adam a covenant of works. He gave him what we would call a covenant of works. He instructed Adam and his wife Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was central to their purpose. Adam was capable of perfect, unyielding obedience to this command. And God put Adam in a garden in Eden. 
where God caused every tree that yields good fruit to spring up. The Genesis account tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And then we read this. We read, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. What we must see here, first of all, is that this is a covenant. This is a covenant arrangement between God and Adam, and we would say that this was a covenant of works because Adam's obedience was not only required, it was not only demanded, but it was possible because Adam had not fallen. He was still in his original state. And there would be severe, severe consequences if he did not uphold the terms and conditions of this covenant of works. If Adam ate from the tree of good and evil knowledge, God said that on that day he would surely die. We have to understand that. We have to understand that. Because as we all know, Adam did not fulfill the terms and conditions of this covenant of works. He, fa- he failed. He fell. He ate some of the, of the fruit from the tree in an attempt to gain something that God had not given him. And that is the authority to decide for himself what is good and what is not good. He, to, to, de- to decide for himself what is uh, holy or what is good and what is evil. And so he defied God. He rebelled against God's command, even though God had given him absolutely everything that he needed in order to fulfill the conditions of this covenant. And so on that day, when he ate that fruit, he died. He died. And of course, we would all have to agree that he didn't die in a physical sense. You know, his heart would keep beating for, for, for several more years, several hundred years, in fact, after that point. Uh, he didn't stop breathing on the spot. He didn't stop thinking when he ate the fruit. No, he didn't die in a physical way or an observable, materialistic way. He died spiritually. He died spiritually. He was no longer able to experience fellowship with God. He was no longer able to have the communion that he once had with God, to live in peaceful union with God, to understand the things about God, and to perfectly understand and fulfill the things that God had instructed him to do. And it was not just him. It was his very nature that fell. His whole being fell into sin, and thus all of his physical offspring fell as well. So let us be really, really clear at the offset about something here. God said that the consequence would be death, and death was the consequence of Adam's sin. Man did not become spiritually neutral when Adam fell. That's a heresy called Pelagianism. Man did not become spiritually sick or spiritually wounded. That's called semi-Pelagianism. No, Adam died. He died spiritually. And with him, so did all of his offspring. Paul explains that for us. He puts, his, puts it in the clearest of terms for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
See, when Adam sinned, he died. He died spiritually. And that must, uh, it, 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 was, it meant that all of his offspring would also be born into the condition that Adam now suffered. Spiritual death. Separated completely from God. Separated from Christ, whom John has told us is the source of all life. But God immediately responded with a new covenant. A covenant of grace. God didn't just destroy Adam and Eve. He didn't just drive them out of the garden with nothing. No, he made garments of animal skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. That was grace. And we would say that this is the institution of the covenant of grace because he gave them something they did not deserve. They had only earned his wrath. But in clothing them with animal skins, he not only did not give them what they deserved, which was physical death, but he also gave them something they did not deserve. Grace. And so they went and they had offspring. Their their firstborn son was named Cain. And the effects of the fall were immediately apparent with Cain because Cain could not understand spiritual things. So when Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God and Cain's was rejected, Cain lashed out at Abel, striking him dead. Now, you might ask, what does this have to do with the gospel according to John? What does this have to do with our text today? In our text today, we're going to see one of the terrible, terrible effects of the fall in vivid color, that apart from God's grace, natural man is incapable of understanding and obeying spiritual things. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. And I realize what a difficult concept this is for us. Because when you look on the surface, it does not appear to be the case that anybody is dead. Uh, what is our, after all, what is our first instinct when somebody who maybe isn't a Christian, or, or maybe they're not a Christian yet, but they, they ask for us to prove something about the Christian faith, uh, prove that God is real, or prove that you know, we, can, we can trust the Bible, or something like that. Our first instinct is to provide evidence, isn't it? Even this past week, I was sharing the gospel with an atheist, and he challenged me to prove that God exists and that the Bible is true. And I gave him what has just kind of become my go-to response when I'm talking with somebody who's outside of the faith, somebody who's not a believer. I said, what kind of evidence would it take to convince you to repent and to believe in Christ? And he couldn't answer the question. Instead, I I think he was actually kind of taken back. He was kind of shocked because he realized all of a sudden that he was asking for something that he knew was going to be insufficient for the result that I was trying to get him to. And so I told him what I've learned to tell anyone outside of the faith, any skeptic especially, that his problem with accepting and believing the Christian faith is not a lack of evidence. It's not proof that he needs No, the reason that he has rejected the Christian faith is because he loves his own sin. 
It's his love for the things that he knows God hates. It's his love for the things that he instinctively knows God condemns because his own conscience condemns these things that causes him to actively suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And that even if he were to deny these things, even if he were to deny that the reason he doesn't believe is because he's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, I mean, who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe what a sinner says about himself, or am I going to believe what God, who cannot lie, says about the sinner in his holy word? I mean, it's a no-brainer. I'm going to believe what God says, not what the atheist says. So we find ourselves today in the second chapter of John, where we've already seen two miracles performed by Christ. First, uh, the spectacular one, the one where he turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And then John goes on to tell us about the first cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem when Jesus drove out the money changers, overturning their their tables. The miracle there was seen in the fact that nobody tried to stop him. Nobody dared to challenge him or to try to get in his way. I mean, think about it for a second. There were hundreds, if, if not thousands, of men who would have been armed with swords and stones and and strength and who were angry, and yet nobody lifted a finger to try to stop him. Undoubtedly, because they felt an intangible sense of his divine power, his authority. So we're going to be looking at the aftermath of the cleansing of the temple today which is recorded for us in verses 18 to 22 of John chapter 2. And the point of this passage is that when Jesus confronts your sin, you must simply yield to him, believing in him as the Savior who was crucified and raised from the dead. But this is the key to this text. Here's the key that you need to understand and make sense of this text. That the natural man, apart from God's grace, is totally and entirely incapable of receiving and accepting and obeying spiritual things. Without that, without that understanding, it's going to be difficult to make a whole lot of sense of this passage. So let's look at it. It's verses 18 to 22 in John chapter 2. We read this. It says, The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This is God's holy and infallible, sufficient, all-sufficient word. Jesus had a way of completely confusing people when he wanted to. He had a way of confusing the scribes and the Pharisees in the way that he responded to them, especially in John. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day talking about how difficult some of the language uh, Jesus uses in the gospel according to John can be. 
And it's because sometimes Jesus would try to reveal truth in what he said, and sometimes he would try to conceal truth in what he said. And that was one of the purposes of some of the parables, was to conceal truth. But time after time, we see the same thing. They'll ask a question, the Pharisees or the scribes or whoever, they'll ask a question, and he responds to them, but he doesn't just give them a straight answer, as we might hope. No, he would answer them in a very indirect way. They want a direct response, and that's what they're expecting here. But Jesus doesn't give them what they want. So he answers them indirectly, not directly. But two things are very clear at the outset here. Number one, these are the people whom Jesus just drove out of the temple. And number two, they're not very happy about it. In fact, they're really upset about it. In other words, what we have to see here from the very beginning of this passage is that these people who were just confronted in their sin are now refusing to repent for their sin. Let me say that again. What we see here from the beginning is that these people who were driven out of the temple, who were confronted in their sin, are refusing to repent of their sin. There's no record of even one single person sitting there and thinking, you know what? He's actually right. I I, I turned the house of the Lord into a den of thieves. You know, he's right. I, I was guilty of exactly what he just accused me of. I had turned God's place into a business where I was able to profit. I had made my religion all about me. God, please forgive me. There's no denying that that's exactly what they should have done. Because Jesus had the authority to cleanse the temple. And the response should have been, you're right. The temple did need to be cleaned. And we repent. We're not going to do it again. Even if they didn't have the faintest clue that Jesus had both the power and the authority to have driven them out, we can't deny the truth of what he accused them rightfully of doing. And thus, even if it wasn't God incarnate himself who made this accusation, who made this, this charge, even if it was Peter who had confronted them, or maybe if it had been John who confronted them, or if it had been a donkey who confronted them for that matter, it doesn't matter. The only proper response on behalf of the guilty would have been to repent and confess their sin. But their response is not to confess and repent. Instead, they dig their heels in. Instead, they challenge his authority. They, they ask him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, we should understand that when they use the word sign, we're, we're talking about something supernatural, right? We're, we're talking about a miracle that would validate his, his authority to do this. That's the word that John uses. He uses signs, uh, the word sign for miracles, And so the essence of their question really is this. Who do you think you are, God? That would have been an interesting way to word it. But the thing is, they knew the answer to that question. They knew the truth. They had just felt his power. They had just had a sense of his divine authority to drive them out. But compare their response, compare the response of these these Pharisees and these scribes to the response of the disciples 
So the cleansing of the temple. How did the disciples respond when the temple was cleansed? We see, we see this. We need to see this because there's a contrast between the, uh, the response of the religious leaders and the response of the disciples. The disciples had seen the exact same thing. They had witnessed the exact same event. But look at their response in verse 17. They remember what the Scriptures said. That's their response. They remember what the Scriptures said. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's their response. Who was that written of? The Christ. The Messiah. And so their response is to believe. Their response is to say, He has the authority to do this. So we have to believe that it was the Holy Spirit himself that was bringing this verse from the Psalms to their minds all at the same time. And so they understood. They understood what the significance of what Jesus was doing was. They accepted it. They saw how it was in accord with what God himself had revealed. And yet the scribes and Pharisees, on the other hand, who knew the Scriptures, and not only did they know the Scriptures, but they knew them very well, better than the disciples, without any doubt. Their response is not to think about the Scriptures. Their response is to defy the one who gave them the Scriptures. Their response is to, to defiantly question the authority of God incarnate. Paul asks this question to the religiously minded in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, it was entirely the mercy of God that these men could even stand before Jesus. It was entirely the mercy of God that these men had escaped the cleansing of the temple with their lives still intact, their hearts still beating, their minds still thinking, because he had every right to consume them with his furious wrath on the spot. After all, that's exactly how God dealed with people who had defiled the temple in the Old Testament, men like Nadab and Abihu. And even though God had shown them mercy, great mercy, what is their response? Their hearts should have been broken but instead, their hearts are hardened. And they question Christ's own authority, which is the very authority of God himself. One event, two groups of people, two completely different responses to that event. What was it that made the difference? The difference is that the disciples had ears to hear and eyes to see. The natural, unregenerate man can only perceive and believe natural things. The spiritual cannot be understood or accepted by him. They are foolishness to him. One of the great evidences that a person is saved is when they are confronted in their sin, as at some point we all will be. But when they're confronted in their sin, they do not question God's authority. Instead, they yield to it. They submit to it. Their hearts aren't hardened by what God says about the sin in their lives. Their hearts are softened by what God says about the sin in their lives. 
Their response isn't anger. Their response isn't rebellion or defiance. It's confession, repentance, and a longing to walk in the light rather than to walk in the darkness. The response of the regenerate heart isn't to argue. It's to agree. One of the objections to to biblical theology and assurance that I came across recently is that, uh, that it doesn't allow somebody to have an assurance of salvation. And that just isn't true, friends. You don't have to believe in easy believism where you you say a prayer and and you're good to go to have assurance. That's false assurance. That's that's the most dangerous assurance. We want what Scripture gives us, and Scripture gives us right assurance as opposed to false assurance. False assurance is the most dangerous thing in the world. The truth is that there are evidences that we can and should look for in our lives, evidences supported by the Scriptures, which can either give us great assurance or which should frighten us if those evidences are missing in our lives and compel us to repent and to believe in Christ. And one of the great evidences, one of the great assurances of salvation is a person's response when they are confronted in their sin. Do they respond by repenting? Or do they respond by resenting? And if you call people to repentance enough, you'll see them do both. You'll see, you'll see some people repent and some people get defiant and resentful. Do they become broken? Or do they become boisterous? Are they smitten with grief or are they overwhelmed with outrage? Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. He says, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Has God ever confronted you in your sin, friends? Of course he has. And so the question is, when he does, or when he has in the past, what's your response? To repent or resent? See, there are two ways of responding to God's authority. There is a right way and there is a wrong way. One is according to the will of God and one according to the ways of the world. Friends, the temple belongs to Jesus, and Jesus has authority over the temple. And if you are in Christ, you, both collectively and individually, are his temple. And so when Jesus confronts your sin, what do you do? You must yield to him. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It's been said that if you want to put a burr under somebody's saddle, if you want to stir up somebody's zeal, attack or offend what that person loves. And that's why the people, when we go out to Planned Parenthood, that's why they curse at us and swear at us and spit at us. It's because we're attacking something that they love. What do they love? Sin. 
death. On, on the other hand, if you, if you want to stir up my zeal personally, um, you know, you, maybe, you wanna, maybe you would insult somebody I love um, or, or offend somebody that I love. Maybe you would, you would insult somebody in my family or maybe you would blaspheme the name of the Lord. See, these scribes and these Pharisees are confronted in their sin by Jesus and their response because Jesus is attacking something that they love, which is their power. Their response is to harden their hearts and defy his authority. They, they say they want a miracle, but they just witnessed one. They, want, they say, well, what sign are you going to give us to prove that you've got the authority to do this? Well, he, he just gave them that miracle. Let's understand this much. They don't really want a sign. They don't really want a miracle. What they want is to defy Christ's authority. That is to say that even if he did perform a miracle, even if he did something absolutely spectacular, on demand for them, they would not have softened their hearts. Their hearts would have only been further hardened. And that's why when Jesus conceals truth from people, there's an act of mercy. Because if it's not concealed, if he reveals truth to to somebody who's unregenerate, their heart will be hardened. These people don't want a miracle. A miracle would have hardened their hearts even further. They wouldn't have yielded to his authority, no matter what he would have done. They would not have bent a knee to his lordship. And we know that because this isn't the only time that they asked Jesus for a sign or a miracle. We read this account in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. It says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Totally different incident. This is a a different account. Verse 2, But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? And he concludes by saying this to them. An evil and and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. An evil generation wants a sign. What an interesting thing for Jesus to say. In our day and age, we have a whole movement of this going on right now. If you listen to Christian radio, and I use that term really loosely and in a generic sense, but if you listen to Christian radio, you have undoubtedly heard songs written by people in this movement. It's a deceptive movement, and the people in this movement are convinced that they are able to do signs and wonders on demand, just like Jesus, in their opinion, did signs and wonders on demand. And so you have one charlatan who teaches that he's able to make a man's leg grow longer. Another claimed that he healed an elderly woman when the Holy Spirit inspired him to kick her in the face. This is not a joke. It sounds hilarious because it's so ridiculous, but this is real stuff. You have a church in Redding, California that put gold glitter in the air conditioning vents and called it a miracle when gold glitter started falling from the ceiling in response to their prayers. Who, who, who gets drawn to this kind of garbage? Who finds this kind of stuff interesting or appealing? 
an evil generation does. Because that is not Christianity. This movement is a counterfeit of true Christianity, as evidenced by the fact that they can't even medically document any of the healing miracles that they claim to perform. Uh, And the people who put uh, the gold glitter in the, the air conditioning vents, they have come forward and admitted that they did it. These people are liars. These people are deceivers. This is a cult. Any Anyone who says we need to be looking for signs, be very, very cautious with such a person. See, Jesus did perform signs. He did perform miracles, but his miracles were never, never an end in and of themselves. They were a means to an end. See, their purpose was not just for the sake of of healing somebody or, or, you know, whatever miracle he did. It was to attest to his divine authority. It was to attest to his divine identity as God in flesh and to instill faith in those who saw or who would read about such miracles and signs. But at the same time, Jesus consistently throughout his ministry refused to perform miracles on demand as a means to, uh, or as an end in and of itself. It was always a means to an end. He performed signs, he performed wonders, he performed miracles, but if somebody asked him for one for the sake of proof, he consistently refused. Why? Because he didn't come to be a puppet. He didn't come to entertain people. He didn't come to impress people. He wasn't an entertainer. He wasn't a circus act. And he knew that their evil intentions were what were driving them to ask for signs. Think of Satan. When he was in the wilderness tempting Jesus, what was Satan tempting him to do? Miracles. Supernatural stuff. But Jesus refused for the same reason that he refused to do miracles for that evil generation. But they, just, they weren't just an evil generation, were they? No, Jesus didn't just say uh, an evil generation or a wicked generation wants miracles. He said that they were also adulterous. And that's a, a term that the prophets from the Old Testament would commonly use to, 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 to illustrate what Israel was doing. In the days of Jeremiah, that's what they were doing. They, they were pursuing other gods, even the prophets, even the priests. They were going after lesser gods. They weren't necessarily adulterers in the physical sense, though, were they? I mean, not that we're told, although, sure, it's possible. But they were adulterers absolutely in the spiritual sense. They were spiritual adulterers. What does that mean? I mean, the, the, the reason that I think the prophets used that as an illustration is because it illustrates physically what is happening spiritually. I, I mean, one spouse starts feeling discontent with the other, and so what happens? Their, their mind starts wandering and imagining other people, longing for, for something new. Their hearts start wandering, longing for a fleeting rush of the emotion that they, that they used to feel with their spouse. And before you know it, they give themselves over to their lustful desires and their feet 
and their bodies go where their hearts and minds have already gone. So spiritual adultery is similar. It's when an individual grows discontent with God or bored with God. And so their hearts and their minds start wandering, longing after lesser gods who maybe seem to have something new and exciting and appealing to the flesh, something enticing to offer. This evil and adulterous mentality is ruled by a desire for carnal pleasure, for things that appeal to the flesh, something uplifting, encouraging maybe, something entertaining, something that captures their curiosity, something mysterious. But the point is that above all, an evil and adulterous mentality is not content with the Lord. An evil and adulterous mentality gets bored with God. And Jesus would not perform signs and wonders and miracles for the sake of gaining the attention or the adoration of a person who just wanted to see something neat or something exciting. Think of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus uh, dies and he goes to heaven and the rich man who had treated Lazarus like a dog, worse than a dog throughout his whole life. Lazarus goes to heaven, the rich man goes to hell. And while he's in hell, he cries out to Abraham. He doesn't cry out to God, by the way, which is an interesting side note. He doesn't cry out to God. He cries out to Abraham, and he says this. He says, send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame." And Abraham responds by telling the rich man that there's no going back and forth between where, where they are and where the rich man is. So with this established, the rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham responds by saying this, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, they have the scriptures. And the scriptures are enough to convince them that they don't want to go where you are. And the rich man responds, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Jesus concludes the parable by saying, but he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And this is why Jesus responded to the scribes and Pharisees the way that he did. Because they had the scriptures. And and intellectually, they, they knew the scriptures. And if the scriptures were not enough to convince them to repent and to put their faith in Christ, yielding to his authority, then even the most spectacular miracle in the world wouldn't convince them. And so when these men have the audacity to challenge Jesus' divine authority, asking him what miracle or what sign he'll do to demonstrate that he has the authority to spoil all their fun, to rain on their parade, Jesus answers them indirectly by saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they can't believe what they just heard. What? 
destroy this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. Do you have any idea, Jesus, how long it took to build this temple? You think you're going to raise it up in three days? You've got to be kidding. But what we see here is exactly why Jesus would not accommodate their desire for some kind of spectacular sign. Because they wouldn't have understood it anyway. He's speaking spiritually. All they can think about is things that are natural, things that are physical, things that are material. They don't understand the spiritual. See, they're thinking physically, but Jesus is speaking spiritually. Do you see that? When he refers to the temple, they think he's talking about Solomon's temple, the the, the big physical building. But what was he referring to? He was referring to himself. He was actually prophesying the greatest miracle of all, his own resurrection from the dead. So, so really, he does perform a miracle here, if you think about it. Because prophecy is a miraculous thing. It's an act of God. But it's not very spectacular in the moment. Or it's, it's not very enticing to the senses on the spot. And so, even though Jesus gives them a miracle, they miss it. And you might wonder, how could they possibly miss that? Because their minds were not willing to accept or receive or believe spiritual truth. Because a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. See, the problem that the skeptic of the Christian faith faces is not that there's not enough evidence for them to believe. No, the problem is that the skeptic loves his sin, and thus he suppresses the truth about God in unrighteousness. And that's exactly what we see playing out here as Jesus prophesies for them. But this prophecy is actually pointing to an even greater miracle than than prophecy itself, and that is the resurrection of Christ. The covenant of works that Adam failed and fell short of fulfilling, Jesus fulfilled. He never sinned. He he lived a life of perfect obedience, never once for one nanosecond falling outside of the will of the Father. And yet Jesus, despite his moral perfection, would be crucified. And he suffered a barbaric death. Worse than that, however, was the anguish that he had to endure in being crushed by the wrath of the Father as the sins of his people were imputed to him. They were were transferred to him. They were laid on him. The one who came to crush the head of the serpent who deceived Eve all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 would be crushed by the Father in the place of all who would repent and believe in him. Isaiah 53.5 famously says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And the resurrection, the very event which he is foretelling here, would prove that his work was completed and that the payment for the sins of his people was accepted, paid in full. And when he was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples among 
500 people. His disciples hadn't understood what Jesus had said here at the time, what Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees here. They didn't understand it at the time, but once Jesus was raised from the dead, they looked back and they thought to themselves, aha, that's what Jesus meant when he said, if you take this temple down, destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. They understood. And what happened? John tells us, and they believed what? They believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. It strengthened their faith. But what did it do to the scribes and Pharisees? They were hardened in their hearts. They were hardened in their unbelief by the resurrection. When Jesus did raise from the dead, not one of them said, oh, you know what? He was right. I need to repent and and follow him. No, they said, how do we cover this up? How how do we brush this under the rug? See, they're, they're hardened by the most spectacular miracle of all. That's how crazy it is that natural man gets hardened by supernatural things. It, it's, just, it, it's, it's insanity. It makes no sense. But Scripture attests to it over and over again. And then we read this in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 47. This is, this is after Jesus has resurrected and he appears to his disciples We read this. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Well, there there is certainly an application here that relates to evangelism. And that is simply that we have to remember when we are being faithful to what God has called us to do, which is to participate in the Great Commission. Spread the gospel, preach the gospel. We have to remember that we cannot convince or convert anyone. All we can do is be faithful with what we've been entrusted with and preach and share the gospel. We cannot change their hearts, but Jesus can. Jesus can. Our, our job is, is simply to be faithful, to, to plant seeds, to share the gospel and to leave the results ultimately in God's hands. If you don't understand that the natural man is totally and completely incapable of understanding spiritual truth, then Jesus opening the minds of the disciples so that they could understand the scriptures isn't going to make a whole lot of sense to you. It's not that man is spiritually neutral, It's not that man is spiritually wounded or spiritually ill. No, natural man is spiritually dead. God must remove the veil from his heart in order for him to accept and understand and receive the truth about God. Salvation in its entirety is all God's work. And we need to remember that when we evangelize. But on a more personal level, one of the great lessons of this passage, friends, is that we should never, ever feel bored with God. We should never, ever 
crave for more from God, uh, from a spirit of, of dissatisfaction or discontentedness. Rather, consider how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. We too were once spiritually dead, separated from the source of life, And yet, by grace, he gave us ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of the gospel. And he gave us hearts with which to love him purely and entirely. And so let me admonish you, let me encourage you to let nothing hinder you, let nothing distract you from fixing your hearts and minds on Christ. And use what he has given you for the sake of growing you and teaching you and and, and bringing you to spiritual maturity. And if you want to see a miracle, friends, consider God's work in raising you from spiritual death and unbelief to life and faith in Christ. Consider how he has graciously taught you to hate the sins that you used to love and to love the righteousness that you used to hate. Your salvation from beginning to end is entirely the work of God. And maybe He will show you signs and wonders. Maybe He will show you some, some kind of miracles, maybe an answer to prayer, or, or maybe something even, even better than that. But He has to be the one to decide to do that. We're never, ever in a position to dictate to Him that he needs to act this way or, or, or that way. He knows what it will take to strengthen your faith. He knows what it will take to sustain and grow your faith. And so I urge you to seek and find deep satisfaction and contentment in knowing that God has given you everything that you need, every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. And friends, when Jesus confronts your sin, know that he has the authority to do it. He was raised from the grave and he lives forever and reigns forever at the right hand of the Father. All authority is his. And so when he confronts your sin, friends, you must simply yield to him, looking to him and believing in him as the Savior who was crucified and raised from the dead. May God in his mercy grant us such wisdom and power. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We confess to you, Father, that even, that even we can be so hard-hearted sometimes. We're so slow to believe. We're so slow to, to yield to your authority. And so we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your, your patience with us. Thank you for your, your long-suffering love toward us. We confess in the silence of our hearts that we sin against you regularly. That we don't believe, we don't yield, we we don't obey the way that we should. But we know that Christ never failed. 
and he stood in our place and he bore the wrath that we deserve and he gave us his own righteousness in exchange that we could stand before you forgiven, justified, standing even in the very righteousness of Christ before you. We thank you for such grace. We thank you for such patience and we pray that it would produce repentance and personal holiness in us. That we would be more diligent and more devoted to walking with and obeying Christ as Lord of our lives. And that you would be pleased by that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.